0: Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast, with your hosts Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. There is evil there that does not sleep. Hello, this is Brian from the Apologetics 315 podcast, and before we jump into the podcast... I uh, just wanted to remind you that it is the end of the year coming up on Christmas, and a lot of ministries are coming to their end of their fiscal year as well, and Apologetics 315 is the same. So we want to remind you that you can partner with us with your financial gift. If you go over to apologetics315.com donate, you can make a contribution if you wish. For monthly supporters who give $10 a month or more, we will send you out a free Apologetics 315 t-shirt. I believe you can only get these things if you give. So there's that. We want to thank you for all your support through the year and appreciate any giving you might be doing at the end of the year. So you can head on over to apologetics315.com donate if you'd like to make a contribution. Thank you. Well, Chad, it's the end of the year. Christmas is in the air. It actually started snowing over here. Wow. You know, the shire doesn't get much snow, but uh, when it does, the kids run out there and they're making snowballs and throwing them and rolling snowmen and all of that sort of thing.
1: Yes, yes. My girls, as you know, are 14 and 15, and they have been especially into Christmas this year. Uh, I mean, they always are, but it just seems like for whatever reason, it's they were really looking forward to it even more than usual. I mean, as soon as Thanksgiving hit, man, that day, they were already making plans. The next day, we're putting up the tree, watching movies, and uh, which got me wondering, Mr. Otten, I'm not sure that I know what your favorite Christmas movie is. Now, I am thinking that in asking this question, I could potentially be bringing up a, you know, yearly debate, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to let you answer that, and then I'll give a little, you know, my thoughts of what I thought you were going to say. And we'll see if I was correct.
0: Well, the best Christmas movie clearly is die hard.
1: (sighs) That that's what I thought you were going to say. Yes. And of course that always ignites quite the debate. I thought it was pretty funny when the other day I was on Twitter and there was, wow, man, people take that really seriously. Some people get very offended for, from people like you who think die hard is a Christmas movie And then some people get really offended if someone says it's not. And as I think I've shared with you before, I'm of the opinion that I think a good argument can be made either way. I just think it's a great action movie. I don't care if it's a Christmas movie or not. You're agnostic. I I am. I'm agnostic on the subject. I mean, I think you can make an argument, a good argument either way. Uh, It just depends on what your criteria is for Mm. a Christmas movie. And uh, of course, that's always where what it comes down to. Same thing with Home Alone, right?
0: Well, <laughs> scholars tend to scholars tend to use a few different criteria. One would be the criteria of awesomeness. Criteria of quotability. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: I mean, you've got you've got Hans, you've got John McLean, <laughs> you've got Ellis.
0: <laughs> I'm your white knight. <laughs> I like the meme. It's not Christmas until I see Hans Gruber fall from Nakatomi Plaza.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. But in let's get down to brass
0: tacks here. We are here today to do an interview with one of our favorite returning guests. Yes, Clay Jones is dying hard with a vengeance with us here. Um, today we're going to be talking to Clay Jones about the topic of the problem of evil and why does God allow evil? And uh, as you may have heard from previous interviews, Clay Jones is a visiting scholar for the Master's in Christian Apologetics program at Talbot Seminary and the chairman of the board at Ratio Christi. He holds a doctor of ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Clay is the author of the books Why Does God Allow Evil? Compelling Answers to Life's Tough Questions and Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. Now, we did do an interview with Clay Jones about that book, Mm -hmm. Immortal. So if you're interested in listening to that one, that's episode number 077. So those are a couple great books to recommend. We'll link to all the good stuff in the show notes as well as his website. I'm looking forward to hearing Clay's take on the subject and also some of the things that we've talked about about the Canaanites. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Clay Jones, thanks for returning to the podcast yet again.
2: Well, I'm glad to be with the two of you. It's a, it's always a pleasure.
0: Last time we spoke, 20-some episodes ago, uh, mm-hmm. we were talking about your book Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. So we wanted to talk to you more about evil and Why Does God Allow Evil is the title of your previous book, Compelling Answers to Life's Toughest Questions. I know you've taught classes over the years on the subject, Clay, and I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background in studying and teaching on the subject before we dive in.
2: Sure. Well, you know, uh, yeah, it started off really with me as a young pastor many years ago. It's amazing how the years go by. Uh, Many years ago, when I was a young pastor, I began to understand the glory that awaited us in heaven. And as I began to understand the glory that awaits us in heaven, that's all I wanted to teach on. I wanted to teach on who the Christian was, that we are not we're not just sinners saved by grace, we are born again, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we are inheritors of the kingdom of God, and things like that. And I just love teaching on that. still do. But then, after a while, I thought, well, I understand where we're going. Where did we come from? And so I began to study human evil and what the nature of the non-Christian is like and so and I spent many years studying genocide. I still occasionally will read another book on genocide. And once I understood the depths of human sinfulness, and humans are not good, to say the least. We are, we are not good. Once I understood the depth of human sinfulness, and I understood the glory that God was taking us to, frankly, and I realize some people may think this is kind of crazy, but the problem of evil just largely went away. Uh, I just didn't see it as much as of a problem anymore. Somebody then said, You ought to write a book on it. And, and so I thought, That's great. And he said, You'll probably get this uh, publishing contract in a few, in a couple months. Uh, you'll have this book out in a year. Well, it took 23 years for <laughs> the book to finally come out. And uh, which was good though, because I then was teaching at Talbot School of Theology, teaching, you know, Master of Arts and Christian Apologetic students on why God allows evil. You know, of course, shockingly, they didn't always agree with me. And so we would have a lot of back and forth, and and there'd be a little bit of argument, whether in person or online, in our on, uh, online discussion groups. Uh, that was really honed my book. And so I really thank God that it didn't come out right away, that I really had all those years to spend really evaluating various truths and, like I say, honing various arguments and, and stuff. And so actually, so that's kind of in a walnut shell, I guess, that's kind of a, what came about.
0: Yeah. So you've been studying it for quite a while and firsthand experience teaching and honing that as well as dealing with it on a pastoral level and a personal level through the things you've gone through as well. And I think we should start off just by talking first, you know, well, we've got a lot of different streams we could go down, if you will. But how do you define evil when you're teaching about this subject? Maybe that's page one.
2: Well, that's a great, that's an important question, of course. And and we, there's two types of evil. There's moral evil, drunk driving, rape, you know, murder, gossip, slander. Those are all moral evils. And then there's natural evils uh, and natural evils are such things, of course, as tsunami, earthquake tsunamis, death by natural causes, cancer. Those are all natural evils. And so those are the two types of evil. Evil is really the absence of good. And following a little bit Augustine there, but evil is the absence of good. I think it's more than that, but but that's at least what it is. Is is just as darkness is defined as the absence of light, so evil is defined as the absence of good. And I anyway, that's the best I can do for on that topic anyway.
0: Yeah, a lot of people would try to think of evil as a thing or an entity or maybe they take it to be like oh this is some evil power or force but in in, in other words you're saying it's sort of a privation or it's lacking what the good that should have been there
2: right evil is not a thing if there was some blob in the universe that was evil we would have a very difficult time understanding why god allowed that evil blob to exist evil's not a thing definitely not a thing evil is a misuse Of the will. And the thing about misusing the will is, I believe, and in fact, most Christians that most people who work on theodicy, you know, the the justification of God on why he allows evil, most people uh, agree that natural evil came into existence as the direct result of moral evil. When Adam and Eve sinned, God, one of the first things he does is he curses the ground. And he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Uh, there were other things that were part of the penalty, but he says, cursed is the ground be- because of you. And I like to, you know, the way I put it is what evil, what n- natural evil, what cancer, what COVID, what, you know, tsunami for that matter, what couldn't have occurred from God looking at planet Earth and saying, I curse you. I argue, and as do many uh, do, do many people who are doing theodicy or answering the question of why God allows evil, that The natural evil is the result of moral evil.
0: Clay, you're talking there about how God curses the ground. And as I think about that, it makes me think, well, would you see that as a punishment? Or is it sort of like, okay, I can't have my creation running around with ease if they're in this state. Would you think that some of the difficulties that men face with the ground being cursed is actually sort of like reigning back? their power so that they would do less evil maybe?
2: Well, yes, that's one of the things. In fact, it says in Genesis that the Lord shortened humankind's lifespan to limit the amount of evil that they could do. But uh, for me, God's cursing the ground was more than anything. So you think that life would be better without my immediate and constant care. You think going, deciding, does this obey me? That's going to work out good for you. Okay. Uh, let's just see how that goes. But see, that's then saying, but people go, well, why did he make it hard? Well, you know what? He's supposed to make it easy on rebels. And I think what he wants, what he's doing here Mm -hmm. primarily is he's teaching us race of Adam, those of us who are of the race of Adam, which is everybody, he's teaching us the horror of rebellion against him. And that's eternally valuable knowledge. And so anyway, I think that's, that's usually valuable, and uh, yeah, is it? Is there some sense of punishment there? Oh, yeah, surely, absolutely. You know, he says on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And he says, oh, "I told you." But that's. But I think the major reason is is to say uh, to teach us the horror of re- of rebellion against God. And like I say, that's eternally valuable knowledge.
0: And thanks for that. Be- you know, and I wanted to say that one of the things I got from reading your book throughout, sprinkled in there, is this theme of god using certain things to teach and to show to get the message across without words (laughs) and maybe that harkens back to that c.s lewis quote where pain is sort of like god's megaphone
2: right Uh, god's trying to get our attention and it's interesting to me i think you know humans live as i point out in my book immortal right now about 78 years on average uh humans live about 78 years. Could you imagine if humans lived a thousand years? Look at how arrogant people are in mm-hmm. the face of only living, you know, say uh, 40 years or 80 years. Look at how how arrogant they are, even though they know they're gonna die. Can you imagine if we were gonna all live for a thousand years and or ten thousand years? And so God has made it to the point where it's like, I'm going to show, you know, I'm I'm going to humble you. And He did humble us, and by the very fact that we're all going to die is very humbling thought. And, and that's good for us. And like I say, that's eternally valuable knowledge.
1: You know, in your book, you wrote this, you said, we're not trying to defend the God that the skeptic would worship. After all, the God that the skeptic would worship doesn't exist. We are explaining what the Bible says about the Lord's reasons for allowing evil. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that. Cause I, I've, That really jumped out at me, and I think it's something that more apologists need to to hear and to kind of get their mind around.
2: I'm glad you asked that, Chad, because, yeah, I'm glad to address that more fully. I think a lot of apologists are blowing it, frankly, when it comes to the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because what they're doing is they're saying, well, if there is an all-good and all-powerful God— and evil exists, how does that all-good and all-powerful God exist? Like there's some, you know, like we're going to just use this large concepts of, of God. I'm not defending some concept of God. Uh, I'm defending the Bibles, what the Bible tells us about who God is. That's what right. I'm defending. Right. And people may not like that, but that doesn't matter because I'm not trying to defend a God that they would worship. And sometimes people will say, well, I, I won't worship a God like that. Well, if Christianity is true, you'll get a chance to talk about that. Well, I don't think you will, really, at the judgment. I don't think <laughs> you have much of a chance, really, to talk about that. But, and I think Christians are making the mistake of trying to make God, in some sense, logically palatable. My theodicy is completely, the theodicy I present, it's not just mine. C.S. Lewis said something similar all the way back to Augustine and so on. But the theodicy that I'm presenting is logical to the core. There's nothing illogical about it. But when, I, but I'm giving the Bible's answers as to why God allows evil. What, what does the Bible say yeah. about what God allows evil? And sometimes people will go, well, I don't believe the Bible. That's your choice. But if you're asking me as a Christian to explain why the God that I worship allows evil, and that's what they're doing, right? There's, mm-hmm. They're not just saying, why does some concept of God out there, why does he allow evil? They're asking me, hey, Mr. Christian, why does the God that you worship allow evil? Well, the Bible's my answer. And you can say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, that's okay, but that's not the issue. And it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, because I'm explaining what I believe is the answer to why God allows evil. And that comes from the Bible.
1: Yeah, well said. Yeah, I I told Brian lately, the more I study and the more I do the podcast, the more I learn, the more I'm starting to understand that This idea of defending a generic theism might be easier, but you also relinquish a lot of the ammunition that you would have to answer the objections. And so if there are good arguments for the Bible, then why not defend the whole enchilada?
2: Right. I think that's exactly right. You know, why, you know, just we're going to just defend this sort of what's the ultimate conception of what a God would be. I'm not interested in that. I'm defending the God of the Bible. Amen. And I think, too, I think sometimes in, in just when it comes to defending the existence of God, I think sometimes we get way too philosophical. Mm. If, you at, if you look at the book of Acts and the way they preached, they, re, they constantly appealed to the resurrection of Jesus. When Paul was in Athens, you know, he says, he said a day when he will judge the world by the man he's appointed. And then he says, he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. I do like the Kalam I like the cosmological argument just to start off with sort of a there we have reason to believe there's a god but then I go right sure. to the resurrection from there because I I think things like well I'm going to get some people are not going to like this I think the ontological argument is largely a waste a waste of time <laughs> I mean it's just so you know anyway I, I that's what I think pretty abstract
0: yeah one uh, thing I was thinking about and chatting with Chad about there about your book is that Sometimes it uh, seems to me a skeptic or a critic will raise the problem of evil and uh, the things that they say God has done that uh, is uh, mean and nasty and judgmental. In doing that, they'll try to frame the uh, discussion. To me, when I read your book, it sort of says, No, no, I'm not going to play on that ground because you framed it wrong. Let me reframe that or, or tilt the frame so you're looking at it rightly. And one of the ways that I think that you do that is, for instance, you've got uh, uh, someone like Bart Ehrman who brings up the objection of evil and says, it's God's problem. Um, yeah. and, but in the book, you basically argue that no, evil is man's problem. Yeah. Can you unpack that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so if you really study humankind in, when it comes to torture and mass murder, uh, genocide, one of the things that was most fascinating to me, well, I was reading, I think it was a book called The Rape of Dan King. In 1937, Japan invaded N- Nanking, China, and raped, tortured, murdered about 300,000 Chinese in Nanking, China. And Iris Chang's point, one of her points, and who wrote that book, and was that humans do this. And then I've assigned to my classes a book called Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. And the point of his book is, it's, in fact, the subtitle of his book is Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. And Browning concludes, he says, I could have been the killer or the evader. Both were human. But anyway, in researching these things, all of a sudden, there's a truth that dawns on you, and it's, and, and it's quite an amazing truth. And that is, this is what humans do. Humans do this. Humans do genocide. And we may not. And a lot of people don't want that to be true. They want to say, no, those people are inhuman monsters. But every genocide researcher I've ever read, and I've read many of them, and every genocide victim I've ever read, and I've read many of them, agrees that it's the average ordinary member of a population that commits genocide. The genocide is not something that just some really bad people happen to do. That's just, it's just simply not true. And anybody that studies genocide long enough will come to that conclusion. I've got a quote uh, by... Uh, George Krenn and Leon Rappaport, George Krenn's a historian, Leon Rappaport, a psychologist. And they said, what remains is a central deadening sense of despair over the human species. Where can one find an affirmative meaning in life? Human beings can do such things. Along with this despair, there may also come a desperate new feeling of vulnerability attached to the fact that one is human. If one keeps at the Holocaust long enough, then sooner or later the ultimate truth begins to reveal itself. One knows finally that one could either do it or be done to. If it could happen on such a massive scale elsewhere, it can happen anywhere. And I, I, I just can't agree more. One more quote from Hannah Arendt: Adolf Eichmann, who was the administrator of Auschwitz, when the war ended, he fled to Argentina. The the Israelis captured him in Argentina, brought him back to uh, Jerusalem to stand trial, and Hannah Arndt witnessed the trial and she wrote a book entitled Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And she said the main trouble with Eichmann was that there are so many like him, neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. And this is the lesson, by the way, I just can't emphasize this enough. This is the lesson of every genocide researcher I've ever read, again, every genocide victim too. this is their conclusion, too. Ellie Wiesel, who was in Auschwitz, said, uh, "Deep down, man is not only an executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator. He's all three at once." Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago and himself spent eight years in a Soviet Gulag, he says, "This is, you know, basically this is what humans do. That humans do this, and the reason, by the way, that Jews never believed." that the Germans were worse people than them, that there was something, the reason they didn't believe that is because so many Jews helped the Holocaust occur. And, mm. and so as a result, you you have uh, this situation where, in fact, let me just really emphasize that, if you study the Holocaust at all, if you study it long enough, uh, you'll find that Jews were used in the ghettos, they were loading people onto boxcars, they were th- pushing, throwing them, pushing them into gas chambers, uh, and on and on and on and on, that they couldn't, that the Germans couldn't, didn't have the manpower to kill six million Jews if it weren't that so many Jews helped. And so that's why you don't find Jews going, oh, the Germans are just innately worse.
1: I just want to say this isn't really a question. It's more of a comment and for not only for you, but also for listeners. But that chapter, uh, you know, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people in your book? I told Brian when we were talking pre interview that that. That really, really shook me in, in a really good way and yeah. uh, made me see the problem of evil differently than I ever have. So I just want to say thanks for that. And I also oh, want to, I want to commend the book uh, Why Does God Allow Evil by Dr. Jones to you uh, for that, if only for that reason. But it also has a lot of other great stuff in it.
2: Well, thank you, Chad. You know, when I came to the realization that humans do evil, uh, do genocide specifically. Yeah. The humans do genocide. They kill very easily. Once I came to that realization, I was changed. Yeah, I didn't know how I was changed, but I could tell that my view of the world was now fundamentally different. That I saw evil differently. That people were committing terrible acts of evil, like genocide, were not monsters or the term that people say. Well, that's inhuman. Uh, No, they're human. They're exactly and precisely human. And so, but yeah, it was changing. In my book, then I give twelve different reasons yes. because at first I didn't know why, how I was changed, but then, then as the years went by, I went, oh, that's another thing that's different. <laughs> and yeah. there's another thing that's different. There's another, you know, that, that, you know, I, boy, I'll tell you evil, you know, evil's bad and people are not good. And once you understand that people are capable, well, as I use the phrase Auschwitz enabled, once you realize that we were mm-hmm. all born Auschwitz enabled, that's a, that's a game changer and that's a life changer. Anybody that studied genocide, like I, I just quoted you, a couple of people go, this is just what humans do. And that's a game, That's a life changer.
1: Yeah. And that was that was the critical point that <clears throat> shook me in a, in a really good way and helped me a lot.
0: Well, uh, you know, it's the perennial evergreen question. <laughs> you know, why does God allow evil? You know, this is often said when someone observes some terrible suffering of a child, for instance, or a natural disaster, killing thousands. And then maybe there's a lot behind the question like, hey, that's not fair. This shouldn't be happening. Uh, why would God allow this or maybe cause this? But whatever is behind that question, many, many different things can be there. One thing I see is that once you argue that man is the one who has the problem, who is evil, yes. the question changes from why does God allow evil to why does God allow humans? That's and right. uh, can you kind of talk, talk a little bit along that line?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly correct. Why does God allow humans? And the answer, I think the short answer is, because God, the Lord wanted to create creatures that had free will. And you cannot give a creature free will and not allow them to use it wrongly. Now, I think that humankind, in my opinion, has a more specific purpose even than that. We know that the angels rebelled and that sometime long ago, there was an angelic rebellion in heaven. Then we know that God created hell. And I think, I argue in the book, in the epilogue, that God created hell after uh, Satan rebelled and before it created humans, because Jesus says, you know, you're going to depart into eternal torment that was created for the devil and his angels. Mm. In other words, it doesn't sound like humans were necessarily in view. So we have this this heavenly problem of evil going on, that angels rebelled against God. God could have just wiped all the angels out, but would would that have accomplished? Wiped out all the bad angels. What would that accomplish except for the 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 other angels that go whoa might makes you know I'm, might makes right disobey God and He destroys you. <laughs> you know he he stomps you out if you disobey Him. So don't disobey God. That doesn't that's not a lesson. So I think what the Lord did is He created humankind who are in many ways like angels, and He gave them the chance to rebel against Him. And now humans are learning these lessons about. Uh, And angels are learning in in Ephesians chapter 3, it says that it's now, 310, I think, it's now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the angels and principalities in the heavenly places that they're learning from this too. And by the way, if you read Revelation chapter 12, Satan was cast out of heaven when? Because of the Messiah, Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus willingly going to the cross Invalidated Satan's claim that no one's good. Jesus was good. He didn't sin. Satan was cast out of heaven. But notice something then—that the Lord resolved the heavenly, partially anyway. The Lord resolved the heavenly problem of evil on earth, and mm. uh, I, I on the, at the resurre- at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that's very interesting. So anyway, yeah. So God created people because uh, He wants to have creatures around that have free will. And as you guys know, because you've read my book, I, I one of the funnest things to do is studying science fiction and yeah. going through how one of the biggest themes of science fiction, people don't realize it, is about free will. So so anyway, I yes, anyway, I think that's absolutely right.
1: I have a few movies now on my list that I haven't seen that I need to watch because of that chapter. <laughs>
2: I'd be careful. Just one thing. Uh huh. Make some of them are not that clean. So be careful. Anyway, (laughs) you know. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I always be aware. I put that in a footnote. I kind of wish that I'd put that in the more in the text so that people could go, oh, okay, just to beware. Most of them are. I mean, like the Matrix movies, the Terminator movies. Anyway, most of them are basically clean, but some of them aren't. Just beware.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. One thing that you bring up in the book, you bring perspective and you bring the biblical perspective, too. And so, for instance, you talk about heaven and eternity and looking at things from an an eternal perspective or God's eye view or what's God's intention through this. And, you know, when people ask the question, why does God allow evil? One thing to keep in mind is that eternal perspective of, well, things aren't done yet how how quick do you want him to deal with it <laughs> right. so uh, you're you're basically arguing or it seems to me that you know there's there's something god wants to accomplish through this um right. it, the the story is not over and he does tell us what the end will be that that evil is ended well we have an opportunity to learn the lessons and That's right. obey or or not
2: and and i think that one of the biggest things about heaven i my argue that we're going to have free will in heaven, yet not sin. Well, how does God make that possible? How does He make it possible that we could have free will in heaven and not sin? I give seven reasons in the book. There will be no world. We won't be one click from porn. There will be no devil. Uh, there, our bodies won't be have the fleshly lust they do now. Uh, but one of the biggest reasons is is because God is revealing to us here the horror of rebellion. And I use the analogy all the time. You know, I I'll grab a pen and and hold it close to my eye when I'm talking to an audience, I'll say, how many of you would like to see me jab this pen into my eye? And I go, I could do it. I could just jab it right in my eye. And, uh, and then I said, but you know, I'm not going to jab this pen in my eye. You know why? Because that's a very stupid thing to do. Uh, and I'm too smart for that. But we don't give pens to babies. Why not? They jab it right in their eye. JP Moreland, who's always a little more indelicate than I am, uh, he uses the analogy. says, how many of you want to go out and get a spoon Go out on the lawn and chow down on a steaming pile of dog poop nobody wants to do that but i'll tell you something you don't let little crawly babies out near steaming piles of dog poop because they crawl right into it in other words we we're learning lessons here and we're going to further learn lessons at the judgment and one of the things that i point out i don't know how long the judgment's going to be i don't know how long everybody's going to be judged but just as a thought experiment if we are all judged for 10 minutes And there's 7 billion people alive now. And there were 7 billion people alive before now. That's just rough, very rough numbers. That's 14 billion people. If everyone's judged for 10 minutes, that's 266,000 years of education on the horror horror of rebellion. (laughs) Wow. And sometimes people will say, you know, it's it's kind of this, well, that's a long time. And my joke back is, do you have somewhere you're going to need to be? (laughs) but uh so i i just you know i mean we're learning here that evil is terrifyingly horribly bad once you connect every bit of suffering that there is in the world one way or another it's all related to evil all of it is one way or another related to evil not necessarily our own evil obviously adam and eve brought a lot of it in and obviously people do evil things to us but one way or another and then we do evil things is anybody that you know is getting out of the out of here without doing evil themselves. No, that's a huge, you know, I mean, huge lesson here for us is the horror of rebellion against God.
1: Yes. You know, Clay, I thought those chapters on having an eternal perspective and what heaven was going to be like and clearing up all those misconceptions if we're just going to be sitting on clouds and playing uh-huh. the harp for eternity and singing holy, holy, holy. Uh, I those were very helpful. But one of the things I was thinking that I wanted to ask you is. I recently was watching a debate and the atheist was asked by someone in the audience, what gives your life purpose if you just it was something along the lines of what gives your life purpose? If you know that there's not eternity, that that, you know, that you're just going to be snuffed out, if you will. And he used this illustration. He said, you know, imagine and I'll use Brian for the illustration. Imagine Brian's dad is the owner of an ice cream shop and Brian has access to as much ice cream as he wants every day all day but me i don't have that much money i come to the ice cream shop i can only afford one ice cream cone you know who's going to enjoy the ice cream cone more and so of course the argument goes is that because my life is finite it's limited and i don't have that eternal perspective that my life actually means more because this is all i have i'm curious how you'd respond
2: in my book, Immortal, and in my book, Why As God Allow Evil, I, mm-hmm. I address both of that, both, yeah. that in both places, because that's one of the atheists, oh, well, life would lose its meaning. Mm. Uh, I believe I'm going to live forever, and uh, I don't think it's causing me to lose life's meaning. In fact, it makes it meaningful. With the non-Christian, I don't think the non-Christian can come up with meaning in any real sense. What's your meaning? What is it? Well, I mean, what meaningful thing are you going to do? Uh, because, you know, you can say, well, I'm going to save the planet. Well, okay, fine. But pretty soon the entire world is going to be at absolute zero. The entire universe is going to be at absolute zero. You say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to save the planet until it turns to absolute zero and absolutely everything on it is going to die. Uh, So I think good luck trying to find any real meaning other than what you make up for yourself. Sure, you can help people. That's wonderful. Please do. But ultimately, though, that's not going to be enough. If you think all these people are going to die, they're going to end up in the grave and they're going to just be pushing up daisies or mushrooms, which is popular now because people are thinking, bury me with mushroom spores so I can kind of regenerate the world and go on like that. But the real meaning is you and I as Christians, the three of us, we're helping people into eternity. Mm. We're helping them come to know Jesus and then to live forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what we're about. That's purpose. That's meaning. And the idea that we're all going to simply be dead one day, and then the whole universe is going to go to absolute zero. There's no meaning without. And so Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we will die if the dead are not raised to life. Mm. Uh, And I think that is the answer to this world without Jesus and without eternal life. Party on, dude. And I think that's what, you know, I think that's what most atheists are really doing. They're partying on. Mm. Uh, uh, you, you, you know, name the hospital uh, group or that was, was formed by atheists. <laughs> you won't find one. <laughs> atheists never started a hospital, a hospital chain. I don't know of a hospital that atheists said, hey, let's start a hospital. They just, you know, they're out doing other stuff. And like I say, Paul said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we will die if the dead are not raised to life.
0: I want to come back around to another aspect of the problem of evil. And some people will, and what we've already talked about, it's uh, man's problem. And why does God allow man or humans? But that being said, we have talked about man being evil and, and being disobedient. But people might still be wondering, where does things like what we might call natural evil come in? like hurricanes, volcanoes, natural disasters, things like that. And, and in the book, you talk about Hurricane Katrina. So I wonder if maybe you can unpack that just to bring clarity for any listeners who might be thinking, well, you're you're talking about man's evil. I'll, I'll agree with that. But how could God allow Hurricane Katrina?
2: Well, you know, with that one, with the New Orleans that was hit New Orleans, I always think that that's a rather amazing thing to bring up. I've, you know, heard people bring that up. And uh, I'd sit there and go, well, let's think about it. We built a city below sea level, uh, and we built it with walls that we knew could not withstand a hurricane beyond category three, when hurricane categories four and five were already a regular part of our existence. So we built a city below sea level that could not withstand threats uh, that were common to our existence. It wasn't like when Katrina hit, we went, whoa. You know, They only thought hurricanes go to three, and then when Katrina hit, they went, they go to five. Who knew? (laughs) Uh, we, we knew that. And as Solomon said, you know, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. But let me go with a little different aspect because what often I hear is very specific cases. Uh, well, like Katrina, but let me, you know, people say, why did God let a four-year-old Kaylee die of cancer? Why did he do that? And Mm -hmm. what I do is, is when they do that, I expand that out uh, because they're just asking one, one particular instance. And, and I don't know why God might allow one particular instance to occur, but uh, I know why God allows people to die. But here's what I always say is I'll say, when it comes to, I'll say, but it's not just cancer, right? You don't think God, it's not just Kaylee. Well, start off with Kaylee. Well, it's not just Kaylee, right? You don't think God should let any child die of cancer 100% of the time. Never occurs otherwise. Oh, of course, God shouldn't let any child die of cancer. I mean, that'd be pretty weird if you just, no, no, I don't care if other children die, just Kaylee. But anyway, Uh, And then I say it's not just cancer, right? It's other diseases too, right? I mean, you don't think they should die of other terrible diseases. No, of course they shouldn't. And I say, you don't think they should be raped and murdered, right? No, of course not. You don't think they should be burned in fire fires or drowned in pools. No, no, of course they shouldn't. And so finally, you know, I say, well, to what age do you think children should be indestructible? Most people laugh at that point because they realize that indestructible children is kind of a, you know, ridiculous thing. But you know, once you begin to say, well, let's see, because what they're really saying in all these things is God should have made the universe differently than he did. And my response to that is always, okay, without taking away free will, tell me how God will either greatly reduce suffering or eliminate it entirely. Without, but you can't take away free will, because if you take away free will, then I could do it too. Fine. We, we've now got no suffering. Honestly, the response to that is almost universally... Uh, they get angry and they go, well, I don't know. I'm not God. Hmm. Well, in other words, they don't have, they can't think of a way. They can't think of a way that God, they could either greatly reduce or eliminate suffering and still give creatures free will. They they don't have anything. The cupboard is their intellectual cupboards are bare. And so anyway, I, I and I think that's just a hugely important point. When somebody brings up one type of evil say, well, it's not just that one type that's a concern to you. Right. I mean, and then just keep going. You don't think these other evils are okay. I mean, for when it comes to fires, people go, well, why does God let William R- Rowe, the atheist, uses this, the example of this fawn that's terribly burned in a fire. And he yeah, says, it's and, very popular. He says, and this fawn lies there for several days in agony and finally dies. Why did God let that happen? And my response to Rowe would be, well, it's not just that fawn, right? Yeah. You don't think that any fawn should die in the fire, right? And, you know, it's not just fawns, right? It's You don't think adult deer should die or... You know, what about field mice? Do you think they should die? No, it's, and I just keep going. And, and this is argumentum ad absurdum, where you just argue this to absurdity and show the absurdity of it. Uh, I mean, you could argue, say, well, God shouldn't let lizards die. Well, how does he keep that from happening if somebody sets a fire in a forest? And how does he keep all the animals from harm? Does he do millions and millions of miracles? Well, he's not interested in that because, and here's one of the key points. God's not interested in making his existence too obvious, and this is called divine hiddenness, and I 100%, in fact, David even said in the Psalms, truly you are a God who hides himself. But God gives enough evidence of his existence so that those who want to believe will have their beliefs justified, but not so much evidence of his existence that those who don't want to believe will be forced to feign loyalty. God could have, as I mentioned in the book, God could have made it so that when we looked at but the ceiling, we could kind of see through it, kind of see a giant flaming sword. Yeah. And if anybody ever disobeyed God, that giant flaming sword cut them in half. Hmm. God could have made the universe like that. How many people would be Christians? All of them. How many people would be worshipers? I don't think you'd get any worshipers in that world. Not any. So God has to, so like I say, and C.S. Lewis said the same thing. He says, he says the evidence for God cannot be like a multiplication table because then we would have no choice but to believe it. And so he doesn't give so much evidence where people go, Well, of course there's a God, duh. And, uh, you know, I mean, because he wants us to, what he's basically doing is he's allowing us to act to be, as two live crew put it, you know, to be as nasty as we want to be. And the answer <laughs> to that is indeed, we want to be very nasty indeed
1: uh brian that's the first time we've had a philosopher quote to live crew i just i just wanted to point that out
0: (laughs) great (laughs) quiet down i'm downloading that right now okay so uh seeing it's so popular these days let's transition to a different question and that is sort of our little bunny trail we wanted to make sure we embarked upon and that's thinking about Old Testament quote-unquote atrocities, such as the conquest of Canaan and uh, what people would say is genocide and that, that sort right. of thing. Hey, uh, you're saying God's good and man's the evil one, but now God's commanding these evil things. Are These are evil. These are clearly, God says, don't kill, but now he's telling everyone to er- eradicate uh, the Canaanites. Uh, how do we look at that from that moral perspective? Right.
2: Well, that's, uh, of course, a huge question. And I've spent many hours on that topic. I've taught on a lot. Uh, Paul Copan, who I know you had on just recently, uh, and I have spoken on that topic at, together, or at least on two different occasions. And the thing about that is, is let me start off by saying, for anybody that wants to know more, and it's free, Google the words, we don't hate sin, so we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites. Uh, and you'll find my, I did a Philos- Philosophia Christi article in 2009 on that, and what I did is, is I documented with my wife's help, by the way, because I came in with a stack—I mean, a stack of Canaanite primary source documents—and hmm. I hand these to my wife. And this is going to sound funny; It tells you what kind of woman I married, but <laughs> which is good, by the way—not bad, not bad. <laughs> but anyway, I hand these to my wife, and I say, "Hey, read these." And she goes, "Okay." And uh, <laughs> so she put a post-it note whenever she read something that was really disgusting. She put a post-it note by it, and then. You know, I took the book and would look at the place with a post-it note and go, that really is disgusting on what the Canaanites were doing according to their own primary sources. Uh, and I'll give you just one example, and this is this is about as gross as it gets. We know that the Canaanites, uh, from Canaanite primary source documents that Baal raped his sister while she was in the form of a calf 77, even 88 times. Now that's you gotta be pretty perverted to be combining rape incest, and bestiality into the same act. Um, and then the 77, you get it, the 77, even 88 times, is poetic for he did it a lot, uh, raped his sister. Well, if that's their God, believe me, that's what, that's what people are doing if that's their God, I should say. And, and I go on and on and on and quote lots of other sources. It's not just that many, many, many other sources. I don't think anybody's going to read that portion of the Philosophia Christi article and not go, these people were really wicked. Then I go on and talk about how we here in the United States are committing the same sins. And thus we're inoculated against it because we don't, what's the big deal here? Uh, In fact, I was checking these books out from the library at Biola, and there was this, I don't know, 19-year-old behind the counter. And I said, well, I'm writing on why God ordered the destruction of the Canaanites. And I said, well, they were committing rape, incest, bestiality, adultery, uh sacrificing their children to a god named Molech. And it was weird because you I, I wish I could show had a picture or a short video clip of her face because she sort of gave me this Homer Simpsonian look, this kind of blinking going, I don't get it. Why did he order their destruction? And I'm like, wow, we've really come a long way that we don't understand the God that says the Lord says if you do those things, you deserve to die. In Leviticus 18, uh, he lists exactly why he ordered them to be killed in uh, the first few verses of Leviticus 18, Are don't commit incest, and he explains what it is. The next verse is about don't commit adultery. Then he says, and don't offer your children to this bullheaded idol named Moloch, which they were doing in large numbers. And then he lists mentions homosexuality and bestiality. And he says, all of these things are done by the people in the land that I'm bringing you into. And like I say, my we don't hate sin, so we don't understand what happened to the Canaanite argue, uh, dog. Uh, article documents that. This is and the Lord says that those who do these things deserve to die. And let me take this a step further. Uh, as opposed to being apologetic, and going, Oh God, that's what that's really embarrassing. I'm sorry you brought that up. Uh, what am I gonna do? Uh y- you think that's bad. That's a preview of the coming judgment. You should <laughs> <laughs> as opposed uh-huh. to apologizing for no, look out, friends. If you think that's bad, wait until the judgment day, and then you're going to see that, that that's not. It's a lot worse. It's going to be a lot worse than that. That's a, I didn't come up with that phrase, by the way, that was Tremper Longman, but I really appreciate Mm. him saying, this is a preview of the coming judgment. So I don't, there's nothing to apologize for here, uh, about here that God says, if you commit adultery and incest and have sex with animals and things like that, that you deserve to die. And Mm. you say, well, I don't like that. Tough taquitos. Uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, we don't, I don't, you know, that's not up to you. And uh, I'd get in line with the Lord, though, because otherwise you're going to be in trouble.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've had enchiladas, the whole enchilada, and now (laughs) tough taquitos. Uh, Unintentional theme. Unintentional theme. And the night is young. Um, (laughs) So let me get this straight, Clay. What you're saying is people want God to do something about evil. And then when he does, they complain that he's terrible.
2: Yep, that's that's uh that 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 mm. about sums it up, Brian. I mean, people really they want well, what it is is they want God to take care of other people's evil or the evil that might hurt them. Uh yeah. they're fine with that. They like to point find examples of like the Canaanites or something where they can go, oh see, these people really didn't deserve it. And there are some critics, so I won't mention their name because honestly one of them is just, hey boy, he, he calls me a genocidist, uh, that I'm for genocide. First of all, that wasn't genocide, by the way. The Lord did not say to kill all the people in Canaan. I mean, all the Canaanites throughout the world. He did not say go hunt them down because there were Canaanites that were outside of of Israel's territory. Uh, Also, he, as Paul Copan has done a great job at pointing out, said he threatened them, warned them. Uh, Remember Rahab, the harlot, when the spies came to her, says, the whole land is shaking because of you, because we know you're coming. They could flee. They could run. Those who decided to stay and fight in that particular Mm, geographical area, the Lord says they were guilty of sin and they have to go. So anyway, I Mm. I just don't. By the way, if you go to clayjones.net, I've got lots. I probably have 20 different blogs. If you go down to the bottom, the various subject categories, you'll find like 20 different blogs answering different questions about the Canaanite thing. It's not genocide. It's capital punishment.
0: I I like the approach there. I, I think that makes a lot of sense i'm just thinking one objection someone might bring up is that okay well if god's going to do that judgment that's great strike him with lightning or rain fire from the sky but why have the you know the soldiers or, or the israelites right. go in and do that by the sword uh, right uh, isn't that harmful to them or you know what are, have you thought about that or what
2: um, yeah i've got i've got, a, I've, got blah, I've got wow I've written a blog on that that I have yet to post. One of the, what the Lord's trying to do is he's trying to get into the Israelites' mind the horror of these sins. And the horror of these sins is that if you do these sins, you deserve to die. Uh, if somebody heard someone blaspheme God and says, hey, I just heard this guy blaspheme God, and there was at least a couple of witnesses, the witnesses had to be the first to pick up stones, to stone that person to death. Why? Because God is in this universe, as we're talking about the problem of evil, and then with the Canaanites too, is trying to teach us the horror of rebellion. Now, one of the things, there's another aspect to this though, and that is, I don't think that people realize our society is very different than societies of centuries ago. And and, uh, there wouldn't be one Israelite, not one, that had gotten to a certain age, assuming they actually could see, that wouldn't not have seen large animals butchered in front of them. I mean, cows and sheep and, and oxen and whatnot. Large animals cut to pieces. I know people that won't kill a spider. I mean, yeah. I know one guy that he'll catch the spider, and take it out and throw it out in his backyard. I mean, they, people are that squeamish. I mean, take it a step further. So David cuts off the Goliath's head, right? What does he do he spends the rest of the day carrying it around to show everybody he did what we'd all do right no i'm wrong of course we wouldn't do that today i mean oh it was a cut off his head i don't want to get near it he, he walks it around uh, saul tells david hey you know what if you want to be uh if you want to marry my daughter bring me a hundred philistine foreskins uh david wow you know i'd like to be part of saul's family and be in the royal family and so he goes out and brings 200 philistine foreskins now, you know very well that he wasn't telling these Philistines, hey, stand there real still for a few minutes uh, while I, uh, you know, trim you. Uh, what he was doing instead is he was, you know, I mean, they, he and his men were lopping their penises off. Uh, and can you imagine? And David brings this big bag of penises or whatever, and, you know, throws it on the ground and says, hey, count them. <laughs> I've brought I've enough. And uh, I mean, we what I'm trying to get through here, I'm not trying to be necessarily gross, But what I'm trying to get through here is, this is a very different culture. When Sisera, in in the book of Judges, Sisera hides himself in Jail's jail's tent, and Jail takes a tent peg and drives it through his skull, Mm -hmm. and what does Israel do? They turned it into a song about her driving a tent peg through (laughs) his skull. And uh, I'm just trying to point out that we need to understand that our culture is very, very, very different. Than the culture that has gone on for hundreds and thousands of years before us. And there's this arrogance that goes, well, you know, I mean, we're so much more enlightened. Well, guess what? If we didn't have butchers and and meat processing plants, then you'd have to be killing your own animals and be skinning them and getting them and stuff. But we do. Somebody else does the dirty work for us.
1: You know, I I know you've most likely heard uh, Frank Turek make an argument that something along the lines of, you know, if, if evil exists, God exists. William Lane Craig argues, I actually have the, the formal argument here. He says, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Evil exists. Therefore, objective moral values exist. Some things are evil. Therefore, God exists. So what do you think of evil actually being used as an argument for the existence of God?
2: I don't like it. Honestly, uh, I I think I see the logic of it, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's illogical. I'm not saying these guys are illogical. I do not think you can come up with objective uh, moral truth at all unless there's a god. You just can't. Yeah, you, there's nothing to ground it in. But uh-huh. I don't like it because I just I've seen it debated a number of times, and I always feel like the trouble is is the audience. The atheist get then when he gets up, he says. Hey, they're saying we can't tell, we can't decide whether there's objective evil. Hey, everybody out there, do you think there's objective evil? Yeah, all the others. Yeah, yeah, I can tell. And it's like, you know, they're they're missing the point. The point is, how do you come to the decision of what's it? They're missing the point, but I don't think it's terribly good argument. And I find again, I'd rather, you know, there is a God, and He raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, I, I think using, you know, that kind of thing is not. I, I don't, for me personally, I think the resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, you know, uh, a wicked, adulterous generation seeks a sign, but only one sign will be given it. And he then goes on and says, the sign of Jonah, as the son of man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus is pointing to his resurrection and saying, that's the sign. And for me personally, I think we need to stick with that as being the sign and and not get off into some of these, which I think are a little bit, anyway, I don't think they're that persuasive to atheists anyway
1: yeah and and i also think too with that argument and this isn't necessarily the way that dr craig represents it if i understand it correctly but if i'm in you know if i put on my atheist hat and i i can easily say well i don't believe there are objective moral truths right but this is an internal critique you know they can say if i if i step into your christian view then there is objective moral truths therefore why do these things happen so that's another reason why sometimes i think that argument doesn't quite make it through
2: well if they want to step into my world then i'm going to again answer it what the bible says why does why is god allowing all this evil well i'm going to tell you what the bible says but i don't believe the bible well i don't care because again (laughs) let me emphasize this you're asking me why the god i worship allows evil and i believe that the god that i worship has given us the old and new testaments and so i'm going to explain that from there. That you don't mm. like that's irrelevant i'm not trying to defend a god that you would worship because the god that you would worship doesn't exist
0: <laughs> right well clay we're coming up towards the end of our time together and i really want to encourage our listeners to go and look at his book why does god allow evil you can find more information and in, in blog posts at clayjones.net but clay before we go we've talked about the problem of evil and we talked a little bit about suffering and things like that and briefly about heaven and eternity And I wonder what encouragement you might have to people who have gone through difficult times, who are maybe going through suffering and that sort of uh, experience and how you might speak a word of encouragement to them today.
2: Uh, Thank you for that. I I tell you, by the way, I'm struggling with some serious health issues right now. Presently, Uh, I have found out just recently I have AFib, which is atrial fibrillation. In other words, my heart isn't running right. I'm taking three drugs every day to calm it down. I've got tests coming up. There's various things they can do besides the drugs. But my, my pulse recently was 162, 163. Uh, now it's calmed down to around 95, which is still high. But here's the key, everyone, is eternity comes. Paul says, and Jeannie and I quote this verse to each other uh, all the time, and before we go to bed, we'll pray and then quote a Bible verse together. And, you know, Paul says, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Mm. beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are temporary, things that are unseen are eternal. And I, I missed the first part of that verse, it just occurs to me, which is, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer being is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And then it goes on and says, the slight momentary affliction. And by the way, when Paul says, the slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, when he says beyond all comparison, he means that literally. That's not metaphor. Uh, That's not hyperbole. He means that literally. Because if you think about it just for a minute, if Christianity is true, you're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever. And I sometimes will say, you know, if we were to, you know, wherever you're seated, if you were to take a timeline uh, and you went out past the Milky Way galaxy and the timeline represented a centillion years, a centillion is a one with 303 zeros after it. Your life on a timeline of a centillion years, even if it went past the Milky Way galaxy, your, time, your life would only appear as a point. That's how big a centillion years is. Your life would only appear as a point. Now, if you put us in a timeline of, of that same timeline as now representing eternity, and you put a centillion years on that timeline, it would only be represented as a point. You're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever, and we need to get past Satan has done his best to make heaven look like a place you don't want to go. We're all going to be sitting on harps, uh, sporting flightless wings, and singing nonstop Sitting on clouds, you know, playing harps, and you get the point. None of the Bible doesn't teach any of that. None of that is true. And in fact, the scripture says heaven is most often compared to a banquet. And I just think people need to put, wrap their minds around that a little bit. Uh, it, most often, the Old and New Testament is compared to a banquet. Uh, and I do think we will be eating and drinking because, well, one, Isaiah says, you know, that we're going to be eating fatted meat and aged, drinking aged wine. Jesus ate. At, in his post-resurrection body, in his glorified body, Jesus still ate food. Anyway, I, I just—we've uh, we, got to get this right. Uh, Satan's tried to make heaven look like a place you don't want to go, and I don't want to offend anybody necessarily. Well, I don't care that much, but uh, about this, what I'm going to say. But um, you know, when it comes to pleasure, God created them all. In fact, God was the one that made orgasms possible. Everyone. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, he's pro-pleasure. And this is in in C. S. Lewis's book, The Senior Tempters, right into the Junior Tempter, and says, really, he says all this thing about fast and vigils, Wormwood. He says, it's that's just window dressing. He's a hedonist, I tell you. He created all the pleasures. We have yet to create one. God is pro-sex, he's pro-eating, he's pro pro-drinking. He just, you gotta do it in the context that he demands uh and commands. But anyway, so we're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever where there will be no more death or mourning or crying and pain. And we can look forward to that regardless of what our physical circumstances here.
0: Amen. Super. Well, thanks so much, Clay. That's uh, encouraging and a, a good note to end on after yes. talking about all this terrible evil. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much uh, again for joining us and uh, we'll point people to your resources. Thank you very much.
2: Well, pleasure to be with uh, both of you again.
0: Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetic stuff over at Truth Bomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening.